And this morning, we talked about the fact that conflict is unavoidable. It's unavoidable because sin is in the world. And yet, through the gospel, as God has made peace with us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is also giving us the way and the ability to make peace with one another. And that peacemaking usually begins with you acknowledging your own sin. Get the log out of your own eye. And you want to do so thoroughly. We talked about the seven A's of confession. Not just to say, I'm sorry, but to be specific, address everyone involved, deal with uh, the hurt that's been caused, ask for forgiveness. And this is something that in a good relationship. It'll happen among elders in the church. It's going to happen in a family, among members of the family. A healthy place, a healthy relationship, a healthy community, there's going to be a lot of asking for and granting of forgiveness. Well, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, after you've gotten, if you've taken the log out of your own eye, what then can you do? Help your neighbor get the speck out of his eye. And, And love requires you when someone is in sin to care for them by helping to restore them. Leviticus 19, and actually the next verse, verse 18, talks about love your neighbor as yourself. But before that, he says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall surely reprove your neighbor. Now, maybe you don't always think of the people who reprove you as showing love to you, but the Bible says they do. And and sometimes... After you've, again, removed the log from your own eye, God calls you to help the other person by helping them to see their sin. And many of us don't like to do this. Many people are avoiders. There are people who go years and years in a marriage and just kind of ignore what happens, sweep it under the rug, never address issues that should have been addressed just because they don't like confrontation. And actually, this is something which, in my wife's case, she is a a peace-loving person, but sometimes she was tempted to want peace so much she would tolerate sin in me that should have been intolerable. And it really helped her as she went through the kind of training many of you have been going through, and she realized that in order to be my helper, her responsibility is to be an agent of my sanctification by bringing me correction when biblically appropriate. And part of what I made clear to her is that you're you're not in subjection to me if you're letting me bow with sin. I'm telling you that if I'm offending you or you see me hurting others, that the way you're my helper is to come to me and to show me. Now, in order to come, there are some prerequisites. And a key passage we're going to look at is Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. But um, there are, are prerequisites in terms of you want to have a relationship with somebody. The peacemaker people call it passport. Just like when our our brother and sister go to the Ukraine or to Latvia, you can't even get on the plane, much less pass the border, unless you have a passport which gives you a right to be there. And in the same way, when you are inviting yourself or trying to get into someone's life, into their business, in sometimes some very intimate ways, it helps to have passport. Now, by passport, what I mean is they trust you, that you're on their side. You have a relationship. You're not just a critic. You're not perceived as an enemy. And and so that has a lot to do with the grace and the humility and the kindness with which you've been treating this person all along. 
So when they see you coming, they don't want to run, but they actually believe this person is on my side. And, and for me, with Caroline, my kind of joke is, is that for the first 30 years of our marriage, she almost never corrected me. And for the last five years, she's been making up for lost time now that she's been trained. But when I see Caroline coming, and I know I'm about to get corrected, I have no doubt in my mind, this is my friend. She's on my side. She's not just venting on me to express her frustration, but she's for me. And that's very important. Uh, also, when confronting sin, uh, Romans fifteen fourteen, the famous biblical counseling verse concerning you, my brethren, I am confident, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness, full of all knowledge, able to admonish one another. It's not just the pastors and the elders or the women's ministry leaders that have this responsibility. The Bible says, like going into Matthew 18, if you know your brother has sinned, you have to go to him and not just send somebody else to him. And so all of us have this responsibility. But as we do so, there are some cautions. One would be, be sure you have proof. You think of the example of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, right? She's there and she, her lips are moving. And what does Eli think? Woman, why are you drunk in the middle of the afternoon or in the morning? It's, and and he, he misperceived the situation. And so there may be a situation where you know, we, we've had cases where a woman is accusing her husband of unfaithfulness. Well, what she knows is he's coming home late at night or she knows there's some credit card receipts that she doesn't understand that's of concern. She has a right to ask questions, but she doesn't have a right to make accusations. Don't make accusations without proof. First Corinthians says, love hopes all things, love believes all things. Uh, I think that is love assumes the best. You don't assume guilt. It's not wrong to raise a concern, but be very careful about making false accusations. Also, be very cautious about judging motives. How often do you hear people say, well, he did that just to annoy me. I walked right past her in church and she didn't say anything. She ignored me on purpose. No, she might have been thinking about what's for lunch today and she wasn't really ready yet when she left the house. Only the Lord, you know, the, the Proverbs says, only the, the Lord weighs the motives. And, and, and some sins are very hard to prove. I can prove a lie. I can prove theft, generally speaking. Pride, you kind of can smell pride, but you can't prove pride very easily. You did that just because you're proud, you're arrogant. You may be right, but you can't accuse of what you can't prove. So it's things people say, things people do, that you have clear biblical you know, grounds in terms of that this is wrong, and you have the facts right. Now, what you can say in that situation is, help me understand what you meant when you said instead of saying, you did that just to annoy me. Or even, I notice you walk right by me in church. Is something wrong? Well, you say, well, Jim, didn't we say this morning that it's a glory to overlook a matter from the proverb and love covers a multitude of sins? How do I know when to confront and when to keep my mouth shut? And generally speaking, you look at the sins that are confronted in the Bible, it's, it's when important things are at stake. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul's dealing with he says, there's immorality among you that, you know, such as not even heard of among the Gentiles, that the reputation of Christ and his church is at stake. There's a situation where a person himself may be in moral danger. You see, you know, someone drifting away. You see someone in an inappropriate relationship that could result in immorality. 
And it's not just because you're frustrated, it's because you care about this person and love demands you rescue them. As it says in the end of James, in the end of First John, you, have, you, you turn a sinner from his way and you restore his soul, you save his soul from death. And so you want to protect them from sins that can ruin them. The truth may be at stake, like Paul having to confront Peter about his inconsistency with the gospel. There may be sins that could hurt others or, or hurt your relationship. I'll confess that sometimes in my weakness, I'll have to say to Caroline, you know, what you did there, I should have just overlooked it, but I'm so weak, it would really help me if you would ask my forgiveness and then I'll forgive you. But it would just help me to go through that with you so we could be reconciled. And I realized maybe if I was a stronger man, I could overlook it, but will you help me here? Um, You do it gently, that can work. Uh, In Matthew 18, Jesus says, when your brother sins against you, what should you do? Put it on the church prayer list? Send out a tweet? No, you go to him privately. Uh, I just talked about abuse in the previous section. There may be a situation where safety is involved and you need to have somebody else with you, but generally speaking, it's something where between you and him, if you can settle it, that's the best thing. Instead of having to bring others in, you bring others in if he won't listen. I also think it's wise to go as personally as possible. Uh, Because we don't like face-to-face confrontation, Sometimes it seems easier to send an email, but an email is a colder form of communication than a phone call, which is a colder form of communication than face-to-face. And when you're talking to someone face-to-face, they can see in your face you care about them. If you say something they misunderstand, you can clarify. Uh, you're doing, Jesus says it's like you're taking a splinter out of his eye. You're doing eye surgery. And maybe they have technology where some guy in Berlin can do eye surgery on some guy in San Diego, but I'd rather the doctor be in the room with me, please. And so you want to be there as as personally as possible to show care as you do so. And then Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, key passage, I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And explaining this practically, assuming many of you are counselors, you're working with people, we'll often spend a whole session just on getting logs out of an eye, another session on kind of following up on that and making sure it's done. But not long after that, we might spend a whole session on Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, to teach the couple that there's a right way to bring up fault. Uh, The answer to conflict isn't just to avoid issues all the time. That to learn when do you confront and how do you confront and what hard attitude should be there. And it's a massive retraining process for most people. Most people only confront when they're so mad they can't stand it anymore and they finally just go at them. And I would liken that again, where if you have an angry eye surgeon coming at you with garden shears that are rusty, um, the scripture tells us how to do it. I would counsel people, first of all, before you confront somebody, to pray about it. Ask God to help you. Ask God to give you wisdom. Think about what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. I have been amazed to see how God blesses a little bit of preparation and how so often it comes out so much better. We're fearful that they're going to get mad. It's going to ruin our relationship. And it's been prayed about and thought about how often God helps that and trying to choose the right time and place. And then a very important point would be, and I'll be concrete here, a young couple comes in, 
and the wife has been unfaithful, and she actually had a, an affair with a pastor in their church that went on for a year, and both parties now claim to be repentant, but they got caught, which is usually the case. And as I'm speaking to the husband, we go to this passage, and going through with him, I said, well, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, against whom has your wife sinned? This is very, very important in terms of being able to work this through. Because right now, you're seeing it primarily on the horizontal level. You feel you've been sinned against. But what she did says far more about her relationship with God than her relationship with you. It's a sin against God. That's why David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned after he was guilty of adultery. And so you need to see that what she has done, and it's not that your relationship with her was great, and it's not that you didn't have fault or there wasn't problems here, but no one does what she did unless they're completely in the flesh, given over to the flesh, which shows the relationship is broken. And so it's going to help you to see her sin is against God, and then your job is to try to restore that relationship to work with me to try to restore that relationship. It's not to punish her, it's not to judge her, but it is, and this may be the greatest opportunity you have in your entire life to show love to someone else the way Christ has shown love to you is you're on a mission of rescue. And in general, I've come up with a phrase, maybe somebody else thought of it before, but oftentimes when somebody sinned against us, we want to be a judge or a lawyer And the confrontation consists of laying out the case against them and condemning them. The scripture says we should be like a doctor. We've come to bring healing to that person, not to punish them for what they did to us, because God is judge, not us, but rather to come alongside and and help them. So they've sinned against God. They've been caught by the deceitfulness of sin. It's like uh, the man by the road has been beaten by bandits, and this person has been caught up in a, in a terrible trespass. Uh, another example to be used is a man is struggling with lust, or he's struggling with pornography. And to convince the wife that her role in this is not to be his judge, to fight against him for his sin, but to be his helper to fight with him against the sin. And, and to see... Again, it's a sin primarily against God, and you want to help him in that fight. And then the purpose for which you go is, in Galatians chapter 6, restore such a one. And the word restore is used elsewhere in the New Testament of fishermen whose nets are torn, and they're restoring the net. So you know, a net with a big hole in it won't hold any fish, it's useless. You restore it, you're, you're making it useful again, you're making it functional again. And so the man whose wife has been unfaithful. You're saying, what we want to do here is you want to be used of God that right now she's broken, she's useless for the Lord, she's in a terrible way, and you want to be, be operating and even confronting her sin in a way that you could be used of God to bring about repair. Again, repair and healing, not punishment and, and judgment. And I don't have those sins I've dealt with with my wife, but I do sin against my wife sometimes. I'm sometimes guilty of being impatient and unkind and too talkative or distracted. But when my wife comes to me, again, and she's really good at this, the, the sense is that she's coming to me to help me to be a better man, a more godly man. I'm, I'm here to help you 
not I'm here because you're driving me crazy and I'm not going to stay with you another day if you don't change. So you're going to restore. And then he says, who should go? You who are spiritual. What does spiritual mean? Well, this is one case in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where the chapter divisions might obscure what probably Paul is getting at. What's the context in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1? Will you go back to verse 16 of chapter 5? I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He talks about the Spirit and the flesh were at war with each other. Uh, he says how the, the deeds of the flesh, and he lists all these bad things, but the majority of the list is relational. Actually, right before this, he warned about biting and devouring one another, but enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Uh, so what does it be to be in the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what does it mean, you who are spiritual? Well, it means you who are not walking in the flesh, but you're walking in the Spirit. Again, most confrontation is fleshly. Much confrontation is an outburst of anger. I've had it up to here, the volcano's erupting, and I'm going to tell you how bad you are. That's not restorative. It's judging and destructive. To go spiritually, which means until you're walking in the Spirit, you're not... You're not in a position to confront. If you go in the flesh, you're coming again with a rusty knife gouging the eye where the splinter may be. You're just going to make it worse. And so if you're not walking in the Spirit, what do you do? You, you, may God give you self-control to go by yourself and to pray and confess your own sin. Your sinful spouse or friend or fellow leader cannot make you fleshly. They can tempt you. But if you walk by the Spirit, which is something you can decide to do, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You don't have to have outbursts of anger and enmity and strife. You can come spiritually to them with love and peace and joy and and so forth. Then you're in a position to really be a healer and a restorer rather than a destroyer and a judge. So this may require, I'll use a funny term, a timeout for you. Uh, to go pray, to go read the scriptures, to confess your own sin, to remember God's grace to you. And then when you go, he says, gently, in a spirit of gentleness. I don't know if any of you have had eye surgery. Uh, my wife has had some stuff like that, and it's very sensitive up there. You want the person who does it to be kind and gentle and sensitive to the pain you're causing. Uh, do you enjoy being corrected? You go, oh boy, here they come. They're going to correct me. No, it's, you see the person coming, and even if they're gentle, it's like, this is going to be really hard. God, give me grace. That's if I'm walking in the Spirit when I see them coming. So remembering how hard it is for you to be corrected. You come to them in gentleness, uh, to be winsome, as you approach them. I too am a sinner who needs grace. I love Romans fifteen seven. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you to the glory of God. Your sin does not keep me from accepting you and loving you. Uh, I'm here to help you because I'm a sinner who needs much help. And he says, watch out lest you be tempted. And the temptation there is 
you know, people debate what that can mean. It can be tempted to fall into their sin. A lot of it is when other people sin against us, we're tempted to be fleshly. So how you go is very important. And I think also you need to be prepared to go more than once. Uh, sometimes repentance is a process. It takes some time. And so you go. It's not like, well, I tried once and she didn't repent, so now we're you know, calling in the elders and everybody else and we want to bring them before the church. Uh, if he repents, you can rejoice. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And, and these kinds of interactions should just be normal in churches, in families, in communities. Uh, what's sad is when people have been married 20 or 30 years and this is almost never happening. Uh, they either vent or they avoid. But then there, there's a challenge for us and I'm way behind on the PowerPoint. <laughs> but there's a challenge for us. And if you want to look up in your Bible, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8, which will be on a slide sooner or later. Um, and this is a verse that I actually quote to myself when I see someone coming. And when you're a leader in the church or in a counseling ministry, even as a husband, a father, different times you can see them coming and they're about to tell you something corrective. And this is the verse I quote to myself. It is, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And so the question is, if someone is coming to correct me, am I going to be a scoffer who is angry with them and hates them? Or am I going to be, by the grace of God, a wise man who will thank them? Uh, appreciating it's probably hard for them to come to me. I probably intimidate a lot of people. It takes a lot of guts to come to me and say they think I'm wrong about something. The fact is they may not do it right. I may feel like the tweezers are pretty rusty and crooked that they're trying to get my splinter with. And uh, I could go on the defensive and critique how they're doing it. But to welcome those, to love those who love us enough to bring correction, to make it easy for them. And I'll constantly think of that. I want this to be a pleasant... My wife, if I were to react against her, she might not want to correct me next time. It's just too hard. I want to make it something where it's a good experience for her instead of, and I said, this is not natural to me. It's something you have to deliberately think about and bring the scripture to mind. And so, again, if he repents, you rejoice, and yet that doesn't always happen. And I know there was another session about discipline, and I'm not going to go into all the detail here, but personal peacemaking is not always successful. And the scripture also has procedures outlined where if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you by the mouth of two or three witnesses, uh, a fact may be confirmed. And, and some people, hopefully temporarily, reject correction. And we have to do this by faith. Sometimes people say, well, no, if if I bring someone else to my husband for his pornography problem or his anger problem, he's just going to get more mad. And Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The scripture says this is our responsibility, especially to a fellow professing Christian. And even though you may be fearful of their reaction against it, you do what the Bible says, and you trust God. Now, what I can tell you is in many cases where someone didn't pay attention to the first person, 
when you've got a couple people and they see the procedure has begun, it kind of wakes them up a little bit. Um, I'll give an example of a guy I know well. This is the guy you're looking at. Um, It's now probably been 20 years ago or more. But in my flesh, I became very angry and annoyed with my wife. I don't even remember why. But when I become angry, I do not yell, I do not hit, I get quiet, and I don't make eye contact. I did this for about a day and a half. And I'm ashamed to tell you that because my wife is very sensitive, and that was devastating her. And finally she came to me and she said, Jim, if you do not work on this with me, and if you don't talk to me, I'm going to call one of the other elders over here to talk to us together. I decided I would prefer for that not to happen. It made me stop toying with my sin, and maybe one reason that's only happened once to my recollection, at least in the last 20 plus years, is I know she'll do it if I pull that again. And that's a good thing. Now, there have been times, even in our marriage, where there there are other situations where we have a disagreement, and maybe we both think the other person is wrong, and we'll go to another elder and his wife and say, help us here and give us wisdom, kind of like Yodi and Syntyche we talked about in uh, Philippians 2. But uh, if they will not listen, it's appropriate to get help. And then if they will not listen to the two or three, and the two or three are there to stand as as witnesses. Uh, By the way, when the two or three get involved, if you're making an accusation, like we have a lady who says, well, my husband's having an affair, and, and she brings in two or three, and you look into it, and she has no proof whatsoever. He denies it, and there is no proof. You might have to say, we cannot be witnesses with you because there's not proof. Or, well, he did this for this motive. Or, you know, I can't prove he didn't do it, but it has to be something clear-cut and proven uh, to, to keep advancing. And then, if you will not listen to the two or three, then it can be, need to be told to the church. Uh, I mentioned you know, the other case of, of mediation. And that's something I know that's taught in your material here. Um, this is another reason why it's very important that people be committed to a local church under the authority of elders who will shepherd the flock and, if necessary, practice discipline so that the means that God has established can be used. And there's some churches where we've had, you know, as a counseling center, we have people coming in from other churches, and sometimes things get stuck where they say, well, my husband's being unfaithful to me, but they still have him in the worship band. And I've tried to talk to the pastor and said, well, we can't find another bass player, and so we can't do anything. And you can run into dead ends when churches don't follow the scriptures. I think this is also why membership of some kind is very important. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, submit to your leaders who have rule over you, have watch over you. Well, membership is saying, these are my leaders to whom I promise to submit. And churches can even work together. But people who refuse to commit and to be accountable really, in effect, excommunicate themselves uh, by being outside uh, the boundaries of, of the church. So we use the means that God has given. And I'm going to pass through some of this. because I think it's review for most of you. And then... The other major thing I want to talk about in this last session is forgiveness. And as someone seeks your forgiveness, which hopefully that's happening as well, 
then we're called to grant forgiveness. Uh, even before I was a Christian, I, I remember I'd sometimes go to liberal church with my mom and they'd say the Lord's Prayer. And it's kind of a scary phrase in there, right? Forgive us our debts or our trespasses as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. And boy, what does that mean? And Jesus is saying, and he explains in Matthew 6, if you refuse to forgive those who have wronged you, then don't expect God to forgive your sin. It's that serious. And refusing to forgive and, and ongoing bitterness is absolute poison. And probably many of us in this room know of situations and examples where there's been bitterness in a family that's gone on for years, and you have parents who haven't talked to adult kids in a decade. You have estranged siblings. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Ken Sandy writes, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. And there's only one definitive answer of how we can forgive, and that is the gospel. And true story that I had a couple in and the wife had had a one night stand with actually the bass player or some guy in the music team of the church where they were and after music practice they went and and she went home confessed immediately to her husband she moved out to live with her parents till he could decide what to do about it and was doing everything she could to show repentance and as they met with me, I believe she was genuinely repentant. But he was very angry and very bitter and some rage coming out. And I made him read Matthew 18. And particularly, we can start in verse 21, when Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And in this parable, this great parable of forgiveness, Jesus is reminding us, you have been forgiven very much. And if someone is struggling with forgiveness, he needs to go back to how he has been forgiven. And Jesus describes your debt in a way that may make you a little uncomfortable. This is how Jesus sees your debt, as a 10,000-talent debt. 
Many of us see our sins as trifling. Well, I'm only human. You know where I see this in counseling is where the couple is talking and they'll say, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but his is the big sin. I know I'm not perfect, but hers is the big sin. You know, mine is, you know, a flaw, a shortcoming, yeah, but the real problem is the other person. That's not how Jesus sees it, friend. Uh, he may be a spiritual adulterer, but you are a spiritual murderer, and it all is about the same right now in terms of where your hearts are. It's not trifling. Our righteous deeds themselves are like a filthy garment. Our sin is great. And the parable itself is using, Jesus uses hyperbole in the sense that no servant could ever go into debt this much. And you probably heard some of the calculations. You know, each talent would be 15 years wage. And so based on the, actually the median income in the United States, seven and a half billion dollars would be an approximate estimation. You know, sounds like a government debt, not a, an individual servant's debt to his master. But it's actually more than all the gold that was used in the temple, which was only 8,000 talents. Point is, you owed God a debt you could never repay. It was really more than 10,000. It was an infinite debt. And the scripture says, we have to. Con- if, if someone says he has no sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before you can be forgiven, you have to understand your sinfulness. But then... Look what God did. What did, what did the, the servant do when he humbled himself? By the way, you know, the parable is not an allegory where every little detail fits. There's, there's one big point being made. In this case, the servant said, just give me a little time and I'll pay back the $7 billion. What a farce that is, right? But he didn't get, the, the master didn't say, yeah, I'll give you a little more time. What did he do? He gave more than was asked, not just to delay repayment, but say, I forgive you this huge debt. And that's how God forgave us. We didn't have to do penance. We didn't have to do works. All you had to do is ask, and God forgave you. And actually, our forgiveness is even better than in the parable, because the scripture said that God did not only take away our sin, but he made us rich, that the righteousness of Christ was given to us, taking away our debt, making us spiritually rich. And if it was in the parable, it'd be like, He's adopted as a son and made the heir. That's what God has done for you. And that's how you can become a gracious person. That's how you can forgive. He does not treat you as your sins deserve, but has removed your sin far from you. As far as the east is from the west, he remembers them against you no more. Though their sins were like scarlet, they're as white as wool. And for the, someone, who strugg- someone who struggles with forgiveness, I'll actually have them like pray the prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 that they'd be strengthened in the inner man to grasp the height, the length, the breadth of the love of Christ. That's how they can forgive, as they, they contemplate what God has done for them. This happens for me personally. I've had people who have harmed me, people who have taken from me, and, and I'm tempted to be angry at them. And if I, I think about what Christ has done for me, I remember my sin and how it's been covered. I can't stay angry. I can't stay bitter. In the case of this man who wouldn't forgive his wife, Uh, when we read that passage, I said, have you ever in your life been sexually immoral? Well, yes. Actually, I took a chance. Well, were you sexually immoral with her before you were married? Well, yes. With others before her? Well, yes. Has Christ redeemed you from that sin and paid for that sin for you? Yes. And he gets the point. He starts to weep. And he actually looks at his wife and says, please forgive me. Please forgive me for being angry and bitter 
and by God's grace they were reconciled. I had another case, a similar situation, where a woman, the husband had taken his entire retirement savings when he was about my age and getting closer to retirement and squandered it on the prostitutes, literally, like the prodigal son. And he was supposed to be working, and he was the prostitutes. He finally, you know, running out of money, his wife's about to catch him. He comes to see me. And by God's grace, he becomes a Christian. He's converted, and he repents, and he goes home, and he tells her, and he brings her in. And for a long time, she couldn't deal with it. But then she describes how on Good Friday, she went to church, and she heard the description of the suffering of Christ. And she said, if Jesus could do that for me, how could I not forgive my husband? And by God's grace, they were reconciled. The gospel is powerful. It doesn't just show you how to forgive. It empowers you to forgive in ways you would have never imagined possible. We forgive as God has forgiven us. And if, if you can't forgive, you've either made a disconnect between your own life and the gospel, in the sense, yeah, I know the gospel intellectually, but if, if you know and love the gospel, and if you comprehend the breadth of Christ's love to you, you will be a gracious and forgiving person. And if you're not, what you need is more of the gospel. To forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. Now, that's not saying it's easy. It can be very hard. And I, I like in the parable, a hundred denarii is not like a hundred pennies. And a denarii is a day's wage. So if you make $60,000 a year, that's $20,000. If you make $30,000, it's ten. Uh, that's a, a significant debt owed by the second servant. But what makes it minimized is that compared to the debt forgiven, it's nothing. And, and for us, the point is, is that the master who has forgiven your 10,000 talent debt, and again, not just saying I forgive you by fiat, but he did it at the, at the expense of the blood of his own son. And he's adopted you and enriched you. He's saying, for my sake, show mercy. For my sake, on my account, forgive. He does not allow us to carry on a grudge. And again, refusing to forgive shows you really don't understand the gospel. Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. But if you're forgiven much, you will love much and forgive much. And the peacemaker material in the handout uh, talks about the promises of forgiveness. And this is largely based on, the, on Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says in the new covenant, God will remember our sin no more. Now, when it says God will remember our sin no more, it doesn't mean that God doesn't remember that you did this. He's all-knowing. He can't, in that sense, forget what happened. It means he remembers it against you no more. When you become a Christian, God looks upon you and sees the righteousness of his Son and regards you as having perfectly kept the law because of what Christ has done for you. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. He remembers them against you no more. To me, it's kind of pictured like in Hebrews 11 where you have all these guys and it describes all their great works of faith and women as well. It doesn't describe all the bad things. I read the Old Testament. They're not that great, most of them, right? They all messed up. But God remembers what is good and forgets what is bad. God remembers your sin against you no more, which means when you forgive, you're making a decision to say, and these are the promises, I'm not going to spend my time thinking about it. You know, if if the man whose wife was unfaithful is constantly picturing his wife with that other guy, he's going to be a bitter and angry man. 
He has to discipline his mind, and when he's tempted to think about that, remember the parable of the unmerciful servant. I'm not going to keep bringing it up against you. Forgiveness means a point comes when the subject is dropped, and I'm not going to keep, again, raising the ugliness of your past against you and rubbing your nose at it anymore, that it's gone. And, and, and that also means that when you've granted forgiveness and you fail, you have to seek forgiveness for having broken your promise of forgiveness. And yeah, you may fall short, and I brought it up, please forgive me. I'm not going to go gossip to others about it. It doesn't mean you can't talk to a counselor by mutual agreement, but the temptation is, well, let me tell you what my husband did to me. And tell your sister, tell your mother. No, it's covered. The picture in my mind is like when Noah was drunk and naked. You had the foolish guy who's exposing and telling people, and then the the, the ones who are doing right, with their back, not looking, they're covering it over. When you've forgiven it, you're not wanting to humiliate the person publicly. And I'm not going to allow it to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. As God treats us as if we were righteous, He treats us because we are righteous in Christ, and He treats us graciously, He treats us well, He treats us as sons and daughters. It means when you forgive, you treat the person as if it never happened, as if they had been a good wife or a good husband, if that's the context of the sin. Forgiveness is granted freely. God asks, we ask God, he forgives. And we're not those who believe in purgatory or penance. And our temptation sometimes is to want to make the person who wronged us do some penance and spend some time in purgatory. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is a gracious and free forgiveness. It cancels a debt. It's a, it's a decision not to hold the person guilty of the offense anymore. And And I think, like the gospel, God forgave us and he bore the penalty. And in the same way, the man who forgave his wife, he's got a burden to bear because of what she did. But he's willing to take the suffering that she caused upon himself as part of the forgiveness as God took all of our suffering upon Christ uh, as the means by which we would be forgiven. It's something, it's not just words, it comes from the heart, but it's it's a promise, it's not just a feeling, it's a decision. The question isn't, do I feel like forgiving? And that's the world, right? Well, I'm still angry, maybe I haven't forgiven him. If you said you forgave him and you made the commitment, you forgave. And and one person said, it's it's both a decision and a process. So you make the decision, and I would say you make the decision based on the fact they've actually repented and the reconciliation taking place. But then you have to live out that decision, and that's not always easy. It can be a struggle, and God will help you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. doesn't mean you can make millions of dollars, but it does mean you can do hard things like being content in prison or forgiving someone who broke your heart and showing grace to them. It's the gospel that empowers forgiveness. It shows us, it enables us, and it works spiritual miracles. Um, questions come up. Well, how can I know if someone's really repentant? Uh, 2 Corinthians 7 addresses this. And I I think there is a conditionality in the sense that in in Luke 17, Jesus says, I'll read in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And so Jesus is describing a scenario in which when, when someone has sinned against you, if they repent, 
reconciliation takes place. If someone will not repent, you cannot be fully reconciled to that person. You can have an attitude of forgiveness. You can say in your heart, I'm entrusting the judgment of this person to God. But your relationship may still be affected. Uh, We talked about this in the abuse session. If somebody's horribly abused somebody else and they never seek forgiveness, you can have an attitude like Jesus, Father, forgive him. He knows not what he did. Uh, Stephen, Lord, do not hold this against them. You can, I'll say the picture is like you're the father of the prodigal son, hoping someday he'll come back. But you can't embrace somebody who's not there. So there can be an attitude of forgiveness, but transactional forgiveness takes place when there's repentance. And then, well, how do I know he's repentant? Well, 2 Corinthians 7 describes, yeah, there is a worldly sorrow, a self-interested, poor me, you've got to treat me well right now. That's, that's a worldly sorrow, but the godly sorrow is earnest, uh, you know, vindication of yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So there, there, there's, there's a brokenness. And there's a willingness to be accountable. There's a desire to change. It doesn't mean there's perfection. And you say, well, how can I know? How can I know they're not going to do it again? My answer is you can't. Only God knows. Uh, a counselor, an elder may be able to tell you, you know, as far as I can tell, it looks good in terms of this person being repentant. My wife and I have been dealing with multiple cases of marital unfaithfulness. And the innocent party will say, well, do you think he's repentant or do you think she's repentant? And I'll say, you know, it really, these are the evidences I see. There's a love for the Word of God. There's a patience with your impatience. Uh, you know, there's, there's a whole attitude change. They've broken off the past. They're, they're good things. But I can never sit here and tell you that they'll never do it again because I'm not God. I'm not all-knowing about the future. But I can tell you this, that if you show grace and you show mercy, that honors God. And in the long run, he will be with you. And if you get burned again for showing too much grace and so much mer- too much mercy, God will take care of you and you can trust him for that. And your conscience be- can be clear. You've done everything you can. You're better to take risks with forgiveness than to be self-protective. So forgiveness is granted. And, and yet you can't always make peace alone. Um, you know, example I gave, you, the victim of abuse. And the abuser will never admit it. And she can't do anything else about it. And, and full reconciliation isn't possible. Now, she doesn't have to be an embittered, angry person. She can entrust judgment to God. And she can pray that God will grant forgiveness and, and through Christ. But you know, there's still something un, unfinished there. Some of you are familiar with the book Unbroken, which is far superior to the movie Unbroken, about uh, Louis uh, Zamperini. He was a an Olympic athlete who joined the military at the beginning of World War II, captured by the Japanese, brutally tortured. After he was released, again, the movie kind of ends right when the story gets good, um, he became a Christian. And the book details this horrible torture he experienced. And uh, he was picked out specially. And there was one particular Japanese guard that they nicknamed the bird who just physically and emotionally tortured him nearly to the point of death many times. And of course, before Lou was a Christian, all he could probably do is plot revenge. Boy, when we win the war, we're going to go kill all these people. Well, many years later, after he became become a Christian, he actually went back to Japan 
and he would go and try to find the guards and preach the gospel to them and offer them grace and forgiveness in Christ. And, and late in his life, he only died uh, within the last year or so, but at age 81, he was carrying the Olympic torch in Japan, and he tried to meet with the bird, this guy, and the guy still refused. And the, the bird died five years later, and Louis never had the chance to be reconciled. There'll be times when you want to be reconciled. There'll be times you want to make peace. And as far as it's possible with you, you've tried, but full reconciliation and even full forgiveness can't take place unless the other person cooperates. You can have the attitude, but you can't always make it happen. Um, but you know, in, in summary of what we've covered in this last session, Uh, We, because we love one another in close relationships, and the more close you are and the more love you have, out of love, love sometimes demands that you lovingly restore the other person, not coming as a judge or a lawyer to prove how bad they are and condemn them, I got you now, but to come in mercy and in love like a doctor to bring about restoration. Along with that, there has to be a willingness to forgive. To forgive as you've been forgiven. The gospel, you know, everything about peacemaking is rooted in the gospel. And it, it reaches the climax with forgiveness. We have been forgiven by the grace of God or empowered by God to forgive. And, and I'll tell one last story to close. Some of you have maybe heard this story, but it's about Corrie Ten Boom. And you know that she is the hiding place. And uh, she and her sister were captured for trying to hide Jews in Holland during World War II, and she says, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947. I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, perhaps because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to say that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, God casts them in the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People just stood up in silence, gathered their wraps, and left the room. But that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform, a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes at the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of sin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook. Rather than taking that hand... He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember me, one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him, the leather crop swinging from his belt, and I was face to face with one of my captors. My blood seemed to freeze. 
You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he said, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. My sister had died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had helped had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world, rebuild their lives, no matter who had physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. As I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will in the heart, and the will will function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and I did an incredible thing, and an incredible thing took place. It felt like a current in my shoulder, racing down my arms, springing through our joined hands, and this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I have never known the love of God so intensely as I did then. That is the power of the gospel. Actually, I had the privilege of giving this in Germany a couple of years ago. And when I had the guy read this, he started to weep. The power of the gospel can reconcile sinners to God and can reconcile sinners to sinners. What is impossible with us is impossible with God because of the power of the gospel that has saved us. And he who has forgiven us all things and paid our infinite debt can empower us to forgive others, to make sacrifices for the sake of godly peace and reconciliation. And then he alone receives the glory. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We have a great, great gospel. We are great sinners. We sometimes forget just how great we are in our sin. Even 10,000 talents doesn't adequately convey how much we have offended you, and yet you have taken every step that we would be reconciled to you by sending your Son, who bore our iniquity and carried away our sorrow. It pleased you to smite him that we might be forgiven. Help us to forgive one another as we've been forgiven in Christ. Help us to be pursuers of peace. Help us to be humble about our own sins. Help us to welcome those who would correct us and restore us. Help us to love each other by restoring one another. And help us to be a people who are gracious and forgiving and kind because of what Christ has done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.